0: So who thinks a lot about the products they buy before purchasing them? Who checks to see if they are tested for safety and how they will work under extreme conditions? As you probably know, most everything is tested in some way, shape, or form. It might be cars and planes tested for safety. It might be food tested for quality or taste. It might be cell phones tested for durability. I watched a video this week where they kept dropping a cell phone A hundred times, just to see what would happen. I would bet that some of us just buy things and don't really worry or seek out the results of the testing done to them. But there's four reasons why product testing is important. One, testing gives insight into system level functions. This means that each part is checked to make sure it will work properly with the whole. The product is only as good as the sum of all the parts working together. Two, testing catches product defects early on. Product defects have the potential to cause serious injury, so in order to protect users, company reputation, and integrity, it's important to minimize the risk of defects thoroughly by testing them before they're sold. Third, testing is important for quality assurance. There are certain standards that products need to meet in order to be distributed and applied, which ensures they are safe, reliable, and of high quality. Four, testing is important to find out what the product can endure. Stress testing is important to figure out how the product will function under extreme temperature, weather, pressure, or other harmful conditions. This morning, we're gonna be looking at another kind of testing, the testing of a human being. You know, we can be tested in many ways and by many things. We go through testing or trials because of the choices we make or the sins we commit. We may be put through tested trials by the world or even by Satan. We may also be tested by God. We should not be surprised that God will test his children because he tests us as a means to reveal our obedience. He tests us so that we will fear or reverence him in order to keep us from sin. He will test us to humble us, to know what is in our hearts, and then to know whether we will keep his commands or not. He will test us to bring about our good, and he will test us to bring glory to himself. James 1, to 2-4 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking of anything. God's purpose for testing is to bring us to spiritual maturity a spiritual maturity that brings about obedience, trust, and total submission to him. We must have occasional tests and we will never know if we're maturing spiritually or not. Briscoe says, faith is matured through the experience of stressful testing in the same way that the cardiovascular system is strengthened through through, uh, uh, the exercise and muscles are developed by lifting weights. Faith often demonstrates itself more fully by its responses to the furnace of affliction than the warm, shallow waters of ease and prosperity. It would be good for us to remember that we are never too old to be tested, and that God tests the faithful, and that being tested by God is a compliment. So this morning, Genesis 22, 1 to 19, we will see Abraham being tested once again. He's been tested many times. And Wearsby gives us insight into Abraham's previous testing. There's a lot of alliteration here, so strap in. He passed the family test when God told him to leave his family and step out into faith to go to a new land. He failed the famine test, going to Egypt down and God, God would provide for him. He also failed by not trusting God to protect Sarah and himself from Pharaoh. Abraham then passed the fellowship test when he gave Lot first choice of the land. He also passed the fight test when he defeated the kings and passed the fortune test when he said no to Sodom's wealth. He failed the fatherhood test when he went along with Sarah's plan to have a child by Hagar. And he passed the farewell test when it came time to send Ishmael away, even though it broke his heart. So up to this point, Abraham's faith has been up and down, it's been wishy-washy, maybe even timid. But today we're going to see that his faith will be rigorously tested in the most extreme conditions. And when we come to the end of this story, we will see that his faith has been transformed into a triumphant faith. His life of testing by God has produced a spiritual maturity of obedience and trust in him. The question we wanna ask ourselves as we study this passage this morning is, what does it take to take our faith, to transform our faith from timid to triumphant? How does God require us to respond to testing? We find these answers in the example of Abraham. Which brings us to our big idea this morning. Timid faith, when it becomes tested faith, is transformed into the triumphant faith. Before we dive into this this morning, though, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us this morning. Help us to open our hearts and minds to your word. Let us glean your truths from our passage and put us in positions this week to share those truths with those who desperately need to hear them. In Jesus' name, amen. So our first point this morning is test. That's found in Genesis 22, 1 to 2. This is what God's word says. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son Your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice in there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Our passage begins with some time later. So we need to go back to chapter 21 and see what happened before this. It's been about 10 weeks or so since we uh, saw chapter 21. But we see three events happening one, Isaac is born, two, Isaac is weaned, and there's a great feast. And it is at this feast that Ishmael is mocking, and probably he's mocking Isaac. Sarah saw Ishmael as a potential threat to Isaac's inheritance, and she told Abraham to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. Now this greatly distressed Abraham, but God told him to do as Sarah had said. In three, we see a treaty being made between Abimelech and Abraham. Abraham now owns a well, and he's settling down in the land of promise. We're told that Abraham stayed in the land of Philistines for a long time. And as chapter 22 opens, most commentators believe that Isaac is now a teenager. So it's probably 10 to 15 years later. We're told that God is going to test Abraham. God calls Abraham, tells him to take Isaac, his only son, whom he loves, and go and sacrifice him on a mountain that he will show him. The intensity of this story is seen in two ways. One, the narrator uses the word God instead of the more personal name, the Lord. And this is to show, that, it's to show who was speaking to Abraham. This is the narrator's way of emphasizing that it is the most high God, Abraham's God, the one who gives and takes away, who's testing him. There's no doubt where this command is coming from. Two, in the original language, God says, please take your son. And we've seen this before in each instance, And God is asking the person to do something extraordinary, something that defies rational thinking. And we can know that God is fully aware of the magnitude of this test for Abraham. A burnt offering was the language of tabernacle sacrifice. It was a sacrifice where the entire animal was burned on the altar. With this type of sacrifice, the offerer is saying that they were completely submitting themselves to the Lord we can only wonder what Abraham must have been feeling. You know, it's taken 100 years for him to have a son born to him by Sarah. And this son was to be the promised son which would give Abraham descendants like the stars in the sky. This is the son through which his descendants would possess the promised land. We don't know what Abraham thought, but we do know what he did next. And our second point this morning is called obedience. That's found in verses three to 10. Again, follow along as I read that, and this is what God's word says. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built the altar and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knight to slay his son. First thing we notice is that it's early the next morning. Abraham got up and prepared to do what God had commanded him. And we've seen this a couple times as we've studied the life of Abraham, that he gets up early the next morning. In chapter 19, he gets up early the next morning to see if Sodom had been destroyed or not. In chapter 21, he gets up early the next morning to send Hagar and Ishmael out into the wilderness. Here, Abraham gets up early the next morning to set out to sacrifice his son as the Lord commanded. Early the next morning means he was resolute. He was decided, and his obedience was prompt. His mind was made up that he was going to obey God no matter what. He was going to trust God no matter the outcome. Next we see Abraham preparing for the trip. He saddles a donkey. He gets the servants and Isaac together and he cuts the wood for the burnt offering. Most commentators feel the order in which he prepared to leave shows a hesitation, especially the cutting of the wood for the burnt offering. Because normally, if you were traveling to make a sacrifice, you would wait and chop the wood until you get there. You also wouldn't want to carry all that excessive weight on the journey, but it's also possible that Abraham didn't want to cut the wood once he got there because any hesitation on that end might cause him to change his mind. I believe that everything Abraham did was part of God's sovereign plan, which we'll see later on in the story. Next we see that the journey took three days. So again, imagine what that must have been like for Abraham. Think about that for a second. He's walking side by side with his only son, knowing that when they get to their destination, he's gonna sacrifice him as a burnt offering. This was God taking Abraham's timid faith, making it a tested faith, so that it would become a triumphant faith. As they come close to the place God told him to go, Abraham does and says some things that might be a little strange. He tells his servants to stay with the donkey. He tells them he and Isaac are going to worship, and then we will come back to you. He takes the wood that was on the donkey and places it on Isaac. And again, I think this begs some questions. Why did he tell his servants to stay back? Why did he say that both of them would return? Why did he take the wood off of the donkey and make Isaac carry it? Maybe he didn't want to have the worry about the servants trying to stop him. Maybe he was trying to deceive the servants and Isaac by saying that they both would return. Or maybe his faith was so strong that he knew that even if he sacrificed Isaac on that mountain, God would be able to raise him from the dead, and both of them would return. And this is what the writer of Hebrews believed in Hebrews 11, 17 and 19. Teresa read, sorry. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. We can see in Isaac a type of Christ in this story. Isaac carrying the wood may may be seen as the equivalent to Jesus carrying his cross. Or at the very least, a picture of Jesus carrying the weight of our sin to the cross. Our passage says that the wood was being carried by Isaac, and Abraham carried the fire of the knife. And again, it says they went on together. Again, we can only imagine what's going through Abraham's mind and Isaac's mind as well. They probably walked in silence most of the way. Abraham is thinking about what to come. And we kind of see what Isaac was thinking. Isaac finally asked his father, Where's the land for the burnt offering? Abraham answers his son that God will provide it. And again, we're told they went on together. We are reminded with this exchange between father and son that there is a deep affection and love for each other, which makes what Abraham is going to do that much harder. But we're also reminded of God the Father sending Jesus' son to the cross as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham again did not hesitate. He builds an altar, he puts the wood on it, he binds his son Isaac, and he lays him on that altar. And then it says he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now we can notice that it seems that Isaac went on that altar willingly. Abraham's over 100 years old and Isaac's a teenager. We have to believe that at some point, Isaac must have realized that he was gonna be the offering. And he could have ran away or he could have overpowered his father and got away. Most commentators mention this as a picture of Isaiah 53, seven and 10 that talks about Jesus being led like a lamb, led to slaughter who did not open his mouth and that the Lord made his life an offering for sin. We can notice that Isaac exhibits the same qualities of perfection that was looked for as sacrificial victims. We can see why Isaac was seen as a type of Christ here. Our third point this morning is divine divine provision, and that's found in verses 11 to 14. Follow along as I read those verses. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham is fully submitted to God's will. He's about to plunge the knife into his son. At the last possible moment, the angel of the Lord calls his name. God's timing is never early. It's never late. It's always perfect. And We notice now that the name Lord is being used. The same Lord who is our Savior, Father, and Friend is the Most High God, Holy, Sovereign, and Creator. The God who tested Abraham once again shows himself to be the gracious Lord who keeps his promises. Now the angel calls his name twice because he urgently needed to get Abraham's attention because Abraham was not to lay a hand on his son or do anything to him. The angels, now I know is an admission that the ordeal was a test and a confirmation of Abraham's depth of loyalty to God. And then the angel tells us what triumphant faith is. A triumphant faith is a faith that fears God and is willing to give up everything, even an only son, in submissive obedience to the Lord. Ross says, the fear of the Lord is drawing near to the Lord in love, adoration, and reverence but never forgets that the Lord is the most high God and will shrink in fear at such an awesome deity. Next, we see the truth of Abraham's words that God will provide. He looks up and sees a ram caught in the thicket. Abraham was surprised and recognized that this was a miracle from the Lord. You know, one second there was no ram, the next second there was. God had truly provided the sacrifice for the burnt offering. And Abraham sacrifices the ram as a substitute for his son. Then Abraham does something we've seen him do before. He commemorates the place and calls it Jehovah-Jireh. Jehovah-Jireh has a dual meaning, which are literally the Lord sees and the Lord will provide. Abraham's celebrating that God not only saw him, but provided for him. I found something interesting, which I would have only found if we were studying God's word in context and verse by verse. But at the end of chapter 21, when Abraham made a treaty with Abimelech, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree to commemorate that place. And he called on the name of the Lord, El-Alam, or the eternal God. Abraham was praising the God of the long term and of the future then. In this chapter, we see Abraham naming the place Jehovah-Jireh, and he is now celebrating the God of the short term, the God of the details of our lives. God will see to it that even the tiniest details of our lives are cared for. We can trust God for the future, but we can also trust God for the here and now. <clears throat> our last point this morning is called divine blessing. And that's found in verses 15 to 19. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Now, the angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time, which tells us that something important is about to be said. God emphatically reiterates the promises that he's already made to Abraham, and we can notice some interesting things here. One, God swears by himself. This is the first and only time in Genesis that he does that. There is no one higher to swear by, and it affirmed the promises on the integrity of God's own name and reputation. Abraham could depend on God to keep his promises. He could take these promises to the bank. And two, the reason for the blessings is because Abraham did not withhold his only son from the Lord. He was willing to give up the promised descendants and the promised land that they would inherit. He was willing to give up all worldly things, including his son for the Lord. Abraham's relationship with God was the most important thing to him. And God would surely or really bless him. These promises were gonna be better than all the others. We see in the earlier promises that Abraham's descendants were compared to stars in the sky but now they're compared to the sand on the seashore. Now his descendants were promised to possess the gates of their enemies, meaning that they would conquer their enemies' cities and not merely inherit the land. It is promised that through his descendants, all nations on earth will be blessed. This implies that the world has already been blessed through Abraham, but more blessing is to come through his descendants. And it's all because of Abraham's obedience. Imagine how we could bless the people and the world around us if we would just be obedient. Finally, as we come to the end of the passage, it says that Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. Isaac is not mentioned as returning with them, but we can surmise he did. We see this before in Genesis, as the most important character is mentioned and the secondary ones are not. But even though we know that they are involved, when the narrator wants us to, re- what the narrator wants us to remember is that Abraham is the central figure. It was Abraham's faith that was tested, and it was found triumphant. But we should come away from this story more impressed with God's faithfulness than with Abraham's compliance. Now, there are many things we could take away from this passage. You know, there's many truths that it has for our lives today, I, I believe. And there's a number of next steps we can take. First, I think we should all evaluate our faith. Is our faith timid? Has our faith been tested? Has our faith been found triumphant or something less? After evaluation, if you determine that you have a timid faith, it would be important to ask God to move you toward a triumphant faith. But know that if you ask for it, then your faith will be tested. That is the process we all must go through to mature spiritually and to take our faith from timid to triumphant. So maybe this next step is for you. Your first one is to ask God to move me toward a triumphant faith, knowing that my faith will be tested by him. Next, maybe after evaluating your faith, You can say that your faith has been tested and has been found triumphant, and that's great. But we know from Abraham's life that we're never too old to be tested by God as he wants to continue to mature spiritually. As long as we live on this earth, there's the possibility of testing. God wants our faith to keep on growing, and that requires testing. There are also times that our faith may go back and waver as hard testing comes. And we may fall back into a timid faith. We must be ready and on guard for all the tested trials that come our way. We must be resolute and decided, just like Abraham was, and how we're going to react to those t- tested trials when they come. Our reaction must be obedience and a complete trust in the Lord. So maybe this next step is for you. My next step is to be obedient to and completely trusting in the Lord. When testing comes, so my faith will continue to be triumphant. Second, I feel this passage is asking us to dwell on a major question this morning. That question is, what is your motivation for being a Christ follower? Why do you love God? Why do you take up your cross daily to follow him? You know, we're promised so much as we follow Christ, but is it because of the promises that God has given you that you follow and serve him? And I would say this is the wrong motivation for being a Christ follower. Look again at Abraham. He had been promised many great things for being in obedience to God. And in the end, Abraham was totally ready to give up all those promises. He feared God and was totally committed to and submitted to God. God was number one in Abraham's life, not the promises that he was given and not even the child of promise that was given to him in his old age. In the end, the only motivation that Abraham had for following God was to get God, to know God more, to surrender to God more, to fall deeper in God and fall deeper in love with God more. Andre Krauss wrote a song called, If Heaven Was Never Promised to Me. And in it he asked, is it just for heaven's gain? But if heaven never were promised to me, neither God's promise to live eternally, it's been worth just having the Lord in my life. Living in a world of darkness, he came and brought me the light. The question is, would we be willing to give up eternity in heaven for God? Would we be willing to follow God if there were nothing in it for us? Would be willing to follow God only for for the benefit of living a life, loving God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and loving one another. It reminds me of the words that Paul said in Philippians 3, 7, and 8. And I'm reading from the Living Bible translation. But all these things that I once thought very worthwhile, now I've thrown them all away so that I can put my trust and hope in Christ alone. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I've put aside all else, counted it worth less than nothing in order that I can have Christ And I would say this is the place we need to be as followers of Christ. Every single day of our lives should be in the pursuit of getting more of Christ. Which brings us to our last next step. Spend the rest of my life in pursuit of knowing Christ better every day. Now lastly, I don't want to forget one other important part of this passage, which can be seen in the title that I have for this sermon this morning, Jehovah Jireh the Lord will provide. First, we all have stories of times and ways that God has provided for us all through our lives. The question is, what do we do when God provides for us? Do we even see or acknowledge it? Do we rejoice and praise him for it? Two, we all may have things coming up in our lives that we need God's provision to get through. Maybe you need God to provide physical, spiritual, emotional healing for you or a loved one. Maybe it's your circumstances. Maybe you need God to provide financially for you or your family. You're struggling to make ends meet, and without God's provision, you don't know what you're going to do. Maybe you're dealing with fear and or anxiety, and you need God to provide peace and his presence to quiet those fears in your heart. We need to go to God in prayer for his provision for whatever struggles we're going through today. As the praise team comes forward to lead us in a final song, I invite and encourage you to come to the altar this morning. Come rejoicing and praising God for his provision in your life or come praying for the provision you need this morning. Now coming to the altar is not a silver bullet. You most definitely can do the same thing where you're sitting. But what coming to the altar does it allows the congregation, your family, to rejoice with you and praise God with you for the provision in your life. It also allows us to pray with and for you for the provision you need from God today. You guys can come forward. Our final song is called You Always Provide. And as you sing or as you listen to it, just think on the words. In fact, use it as your prayer. Some of the words are, you always provide. You know, God, you see us every moment. You always provide every season of our lives. You always provide every moment, every time. These are powerful words that I hope you will take with you this morning and share with those you come in contact this week.